Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's latest effort to sue the Justice Department over the search of Mar-a-Lago with his amateurish filing before another federal judge he appointed asking for a special master to review the seized documents. Joining us to discuss this latest ploy and the revelations by the New York Times that Trump had more than 300 classified documents at Mar-a-Lago is Jack Blum, a veteran Capitol Hill investigator who is an expert on white-collar financial crime and international tax evasion. He spent 14 years as a staff attorney with the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and has been a consultant to the United Nations Center on Transnational Corporations, the United Nations Office of Drug Control and Crime Prevention, and served as the chair of the Experts Group on International Asset Recovery. We will assess why Trump took so long to file for a special master and how much that is a symptom of his inability to find a qualified lawyer to represent him. Then we'll examine how Trump is using classified material to blackmail the Department of Justice into constraining them from charging him under the Espionage Act because the nation's top secrets could be exposed in open court. Joining us is Kent Harrington, a former senior CIA analyst who served as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia and Chief of Station in Asia. We will discuss his article at Project Syndicate, Trump's Blackmail Defense, and how any hostile foreign intelligence service like Russia's would be remiss if they hadn't targeted Mar-a-Lago, where a trove of some of the highest classified secrets are kept under the lowest security conditions. Then finally, we will assess whether Trump has the Samson complex and could, when it came to the crunch, tear down the temple around him given his not-so-veiled threats to instigate civil war should he be indicted. Joining us is Dr. Bandy Lee, a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist and world expert on violence who taught at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring recently to Columbia and Harvard. She became known to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and publishing the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. She's currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition, and her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Jack Blum, a veteran Capitol Hill investigator who is an expert on white-collar financial crime and international tax evasion. He spent 14 years as a staff attorney with the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee 
and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and has been a consultant to the United Nations Center on Transnational Corporations, the United Nations Office of Drug Control and Crime Prevention, and has served as the chair of the Experts Group on International Asset Recovery and currently serves as ADA Counsel and as chair of the Tax Justice Network USA and the Violence Policy Center. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jack Blum. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Jack. And what do you make of uh, President Trump's move? He went to another federal judge, not Bruce Reinhardt, in nearby Palm Beach, but uh, about 60 Mm -hmm. miles away. He went to another uh, federal court, to a federal judge who he appointed and asked the judge to freeze the Justice Department's investigation of files seized from his Mar-a-Lago home and to appoint a special master, an independent lawyer, to look over, I mean, in other words, a neutral third party known as a special master. So this seems like a bit of a Hail Mary. Apparently the court filing is very amateurish. So what do you make of it, Jack? Well, uh, for starters, the only surprise about the filing is that it took so long to uh, do I would have expected it to be done almost immediately after the search and the removal of the documents. It's what any good uh, criminal lawyer would have suggested. And what the screening is for is to figure out what documents are subject to either executive privilege or uh, subject to lawyer-client privilege. Now, any federal judge can act as a special master. They would have access to all the uh, highly classified documents because a federal judge confirmed by the Senate for life would uh, have the authority to review uh, all of the documents in question. The only surprise here is that, that instead of doing it right away, It was done rather late in the game, and the filing itself, from everything I've been able to discern, and I must stress I haven't read it, uh, is an act of uh, publicity-seeking as opposed to a really sophisticated legal document, because a legal document could have uh, summed the case up in about a page, a page and a half, and uh, without any fuss or fanfare, and it probably will be granted. Well, apparently in the filing, they try to make the case that Trump is actually going to run again. Uh, President, They said President Donald J. Trump is a clear front-runner in the 2024 Republican presidential primary and in the 2024 general election uh, should he decide to run. So that seems to be their claim. But when you talk well, about... That's just not relevant uh, to the issue of what ought to be uh, excluded on the basis of privilege. Right. And uh, what what I discern is that the document that was filed is a document to make a series of extraneous remarks and comments and and arguments that are not tied to the merits of the request. Right, 27 pages of of amateurish nonsense, from what I understand. So the Justice Department speaks through its court filings. Trump speaks through his Truth Social and all of the networks. He's, I mean, let's go back to how he got elected. He got, what, $5 billion worth of free media coverage from the mainstream press. 
back in 2016. So he's very good at getting his message out. So what can the Justice Department do in response? I mean, do they have an opening here? You know, the the response uh, I would give would be uh, first to say we have no objection to the appointment of the master and then go on to say the rest of this filing is a bunch of uh, uh, publicity-seeking nonsense and there's an opening to respond but to get into a war of uh, words or to argue over whatever fantasies are in the filing uh, seems to me to be both a waste of time and it seems to be something that would encourage people to uh, join the the fight. You know, when when you're in a fight uh, with a pig, you better be careful to stay out of mud because the pig loves the mud. And uh, the argument would be stay away from arguing with Trump over his uh, posturing and his claims and all the rest of it. Save that for a court case later on. Uh, and stick to the merits. And again, I'm speaking with Jack Blum, a veteran Capitol Hill investigator who is an expert on white-collar financial crime and international tax evasion. He spent 14 years as a staff attorney with the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and has been a consultant to the United Nations Center on Transnational Corporations, the United Nations Office of Drug Control and Crime Prevention, and served as a chair of the expert group on international asset recovery. So what do you think are the merits here? Do you think Trump's in trouble? I I think that, well, let's go to the merits, first of all, of a claim for a special master. That's a perfectly reasonable request. In fact, if uh, he has anything in there that is properly privileged, it should be screened, and you have an absolute right not to have it screened by the people who are investigating you. Now, uh, there is a separate uh, team that's supposed to go over the documents, and uh, Justice is usually very careful about this sort of thing, but there's a perfect right to ask for a special master, which is routinely granted. So on that, there's no, no issue. The issue for Trump, though, is this whole business of the classified documents. Uh, You can't do that, is what it comes down to. You can't take government-classified documents and store them in a basement where they may or may not be locked up in a beach club uh, and golf club where people can wander by. And uh, it's just completely wrong. And the dangers to national security uh, are real. Uh, so on that, he's got a real problem. And uh, this business of saying, well, he has the inherent power to declassify things and he doesn't even have to go through a process is complete nonsense. Uh, first of all, understand what goes on when these things are classified. Uh, it may be that there's uh, some CIA person who's running an agent who's a source inside a foreign government. And needless to say, the agent has to report on what the source says, but has to be sure that the source isn't exposed. So that's how things will become compartmented and classified very secretly. 
this is a real issue. And if you're the person who has persuaded someone to cooperate with the United States, you don't want that person's life to be put in danger. And the declassification process involves going back to the original source of classification and saying, tell us what the risks are in, in opening this document up. Are we going to endanger the life of the guy you recruited? Now, uh, that is part of the procedure, and it's a reasonable, correct way to go forward. And it shouldn't matter whether it's the president of the United States or uh, some mid-level bureaucrat who wants to use the material and happens to have the right clearances. You can't do this all by yourself. So uh, there is there is a real problem. And uh, the other thing that is the case, and this has been my experience with subpoenas and demands for documents by Congress, by law enforcement authorities, the uh, demand, usually, if it's uh, something like followed up by a search warrant, has followed a rather long series of requests, not asking nicely, talking to the people who have the documents, trying to use every technique short of a search warrant to ensure that the documents will be turned over. And it looks like, based on the various filings, Trump has been given every opportunity to give those documents back uh, in due course and probably without a lot of fuss. But he simply can't get to the point where he'll acknowledge the documents don't belong to him and that there are issues at stake which aren't resolved by his thinking he declassified them. Well, apparently throughout 2021 and throughout this year, the National Archives have been trying to negotiate with Trump, and a letter has just been released that John Solomon, who Trump yeah. appointed as his, along with Cash Patel as his representatives of his documents, and they're the ones that made these outrageous claims of a blanket ability of Trump to declassify, which is a total fantasy. But apparently the National Archives, back in January, found more than 150 classified documents in the first batch of materials. And according mm -hmm. to the New York Times, there are more than 300 classified documents have been found at Mar-a-Lago. So the, the National Archives have been trying to get back their stolen property. That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? And Trump, well, by the it, way, went through the... Down, it comes down to that, but it also comes down to the fact that these documents were being kept in a place where they were incredibly vulnerable and uh, the normal procedures for storing classified documents are pretty pretty strict. And we do that for a reason. And here's a, a club that people come to that's wide open. It's a, a public place, in effect. And you don't store documents in the basement of a public place. Uh, you, you need uh, safes and locks and what are called skiffs, facilities that are specially designed for highly classified documents. And that, that really uh, underscores why 
they've been so aggressive in trying to get the documents back. Well, my understanding of foreign intelligence services is that they could not have a riper target than these classified documents in Mar-a-Lago, and that the Russian intelligence service would be remiss, along with the Chinese, if they didn't try to get into Mar-a-Lago. And apparently the DOJ has the last 60 days of traffic in and out of the storage room, and apparently a lot of people going in and out of that place. So it's a counterintelligence nightmare from what I understand. It's complete, complete counterintelligence nightmare. And really essential that those documents be returned and returned to the National Archives where they can be properly secured. But you take uh, the point, do you, Jack, that a foreign intelligence service would literally be remiss if they hadn't tried to of course, get into I mean, we only know the Chinese woman tried to get in. She was obviously working for Chinese intelligence. So there, there is such an obvious exposure of those documents, as I said. This is a public place. Uh, people are coming and going. This is a beach club and golf course. Uh, who knows who the guests are? Uh, they're probably from all over the place. <clears throat> the members bring guests, guests on the premises. There are all sorts of ways. And then there are all, all sorts of employees at this place, and I'm sure they're not given security clearances to work there. So it's employees, it's guests, it's uh, all of the people who are drifting around there who might uh, give access or uh, sell uh, their ability to get those documents to some foreign country. Well, just in the last minute, of course, Trump apparently, according to the New York Times, went through these boxes himself in late 2021. And when the FBI raided two weeks ago, Monday, on August the 8th, they found a container of documents in a closet in Mr. Trump's mm -hmm. office. So it's pretty Well, this, this is a, a further problem for Trump, and uh, it, it shouldn't be under underestimated. The biggest problem in any case like this is proving intent. Uh, you have to show that whatever was done was done intentionally. So the defense would be, oh, gee, I just was stuffing things in boxes and I didn't realize it was there. But in this case, uh, it seems that he went through these papers more than once, and he knew exactly what was there. And then further, there are two of his lawyers, one who drafted the, the letter and then a, a more junior lawyer who signed the letter, who said, we've given everything back, when it was obvious they hadn't given everything back. Now, there are two possibilities there, that the lawyers were shirking in their duties to uh, the court and, and the government and the bar uh, to uh, honestly report what was going on at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, you know, they said, we gave it all back. All right, if the lawyer says it, uh, probably we can rely on it, because there's a requirement that you not falsify uh, documents going to the government, uh, and, and that, in fact, uh, in and of itself is a crime. But uh, it seems that 
they went ahead and wrote the letter anyway. And uh, it, it also seems that he knew exactly what was there and what hadn't been turned over. And he selected what was going to be turned over and what wasn't. Now, uh, that that is really very damaging and uh, something that causes, I'm sure, anybody who comes in to uh, try to defend him uh, a good deal of heartburn. Well, Jack Blum, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jack Blum, a veteran Capitol Hill investigator who is an expert on white-collar financial crime and international tax evasion. He spent 14 years as a staff attorney with the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and has been a consultant to the United Nations Center on Transnational Corporations, the United Nations Office of Drug Control and Crime Prevention, and he has served as the chair of the Experts Group on International Asset Recovery. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into how any hostile foreign intelligence service like Russia's would be remiss if they hadn't targeted Mar-a-Lago, where a trove of some of the highest classified secrets were kept under the lowest security conditions. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kent Harrington, a former senior CIA analyst who served as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia and Chief of Station in Asia. And he has an article at Project Syndicate, Trump's Blackmail Defense. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kent Harrington. Thanks very much, Ian. Let me just quickly touch on a couple of the developments. Of the, Trump, of course, has asked for a special master. He, he did a filing in a different court with a, a judge that he had appointed to help him in his, in his legal battle with the DOJ over the affidavit, etc. But the other big story, Kent, is that uh, the New York Times revealed that Trump had more than 300 classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and that the National Archives, had, back in January, had found more than 150 classified documents when it got its first batch of material. We also learned from the New York Times that Trump went through the boxes himself in late 2021, and apparently these documents, these 300 documents, include documents from the CIA, the National Security Agency, and the FBI, spanning a variety of topics on national security interests. So what do you make of that, uh, Ken? Well, uh, Ian, uh, the the Trump attorney's filing seeking a, a review by a special master uh, strike me as the equivalent of throwing jello at the wall. Uh, if it sticks, great. But the fact is the FBI, indeed the Justice Department, already has a procedure in place. And uh, based on other reporting, it appears that procedure is underway. Uh, to ensure that what was seized were, were material that uh, were properly seized. And it seems to me that uh, both the, the nature of the attempt to divert 
of the proceeding, as well as to claim that the documents represent something other than what they are, and that is a potential national security threat that the judge who signed the warrant, uh, the, the approval for the search of uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, recognized, uh, is just what it appears, a, a tactic. I, I think we can expect more coming uh, from the attorneys, uh, and I think we can expect more histrionics from Trump on claims, uh, bogus to be sure, that uh, what's in the boxes uh, belongs to him. On the subject of what's in the boxes, it strikes me that the New York Times story is very important from a couple points of view, perhaps not necessarily the headline that accompanies it. To be sure, if uh, classified information uh, is at the level that the Times is reporting, there is no question that this is a major concern for the intelligence as well as other national security agencies concerned because not knowing uh, if your material is properly secured when it's of that degree of sensitivity is the equivalent of having to ask whether it's been compromised. And that's something that uh, is, is really a, a grave matter that requires a, a serious and substantial review. And I suspect that is already underway. But the question of how that material was handled, uh, as the Times reported, uh, material reviewed by Trump, material moved from one kind of storage container to another, and material is uh, also, it would appear if the reporting is accurate, removed from the basement <laughs> basement storage that was secured in a, in a fashion by surveillance cameras, raises fundamental questions about the intentions both in taking the documents and in using them after they're taken. So I, I certainly believe these are stories that are worth pursuing, as indeed the journal, journalistic world will pursue them. But I think they should alert the public to the fact that there is increasingly more than has already met the eye about both the content of these documents, the way in which they were handled, and obviously the intentions of Trump and those around him who took them improperly, uh, one could argue at this point, illegally uh, from the custody that they belonged in uh, with the National Archives and the U.S. government. Well, indeed, and the National Archives were in a long battle with Trump uh, all of 2021 and 2022 to get back their stolen property. Indeed, they were. And one other fact worth noting in the uh, in the reporting out today about a letter that was sent uh, from the archives, the, a letter specifying that they retrieved between January and the uh, search of Mar-a-Lago 15 boxes. So if you do the math, we're talking about 15 plus 11, we're talking about 26 boxes, 20, 26 file boxes, I assume, of material uh, that came from the White House. That's an enormous quantity of paper. And it should make this an even more important issue for the Bureau to pursue, just simply based on the volume, the volume of what they brought uh, into the public eye as in Trump's improper possession, not, not just the question of, of how high the classifications are or how they were handled. So there's a real possibility that the top secret stuff, the SCI stuff, was related to nuclear weapons. There have been all kinds of reporting on that, uh, and the Washington Post is standing by the reporting on that. When Trump sat down with Bob Woodward for the book Rage that Woodward wrote about him, Trump boasted to a reporter about the most top-secret stuff that the U.S. has in terms of a new generation of nuclear weapons and nuclear weapons delivery systems, 
which Trump said are so far ahead of anything the Russians and the Chinese had, etc. So that's a fairly scary indicator. I mean, he seems to have a morbid fascination with nuclear secrets at any rate. Is it possible that he took some of that stuff with him? I mean, this that stuff would be worth trillions of dollars to the Chinese and the Russians because even if it turns out that he didn't send these documents off or didn't monetize them, sell them to the Russians or the Chinese or whatever, the very fact that nobody quite knows about the chain of custody of these documents in the intelligence community, doesn't that mean that the information is already considered compromised? Well, I, I think the judgments that are being made in the intelligence community are probably ones that are, are, are defensive in nature, and I certainly wouldn't doubt that people now are very concerned about the security of that information, whether they reach the conclusion that it is, as you just put it, compromised at this point. Uh, I, I, I certainly have, have no insight into their current thinking, but uh, prudence would dictate that they would look very carefully at what the disclosure of a part or whole of any such document uh, that the FBI now has in its possession would mean for the security of either the systems or the information base or uh, or the sources that, uh, that 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 document could reveal. But let me also step back a bit from what has been reported and uh, and what what has captured most attention uh, among the various things that that could have been in the 11 or could be in the 11 boxes of material the FBI carted away. And really look at Trump, the personality. As you pointed out, and I think uh, you're, you're absolutely on the money, uh, as, a, as an authoritarian uh, aspirant who loves uh, things like uh, Bastille Day parades uh, rolling down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue in the place of normal Fourth of July celebrations, Trump doubtless is uh, fascinated by uh, the the biggest bangs for the buck that the U.S. defense establishment has produced. But Trump also is someone who has nothing more nor less on his mind 24 hours a day than his own self-aggrandizement commercially and in terms of uh, the success, quote-unquote, of his business enterprises. And when you look at the way in which the absolutely outrageous insinuation of Trump's business interests into the affairs of state that he was responsible for as the president occurred, whether it was Trump's ludicrous presentation to Kim Jong-un about how North Korea could be developed commercially as a tourist uh, location if Kim only signed on to Trump's nebulous to non-existent proposals for denuclearization, or it was his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, somehow and I just can't imagine how this possibly could have happened after his brilliant maneuvers to help create the Abraham Accord, uh, coming up with $2 billion from the Saudi Investment Fund when all New York banking and investment circles turned him down. You have to step back and ask yourself the question, not just about what Trump might disclose through his recklessness to the Russians or the Chinese or any, shall we say, <laughs> standard adversary, but how he might turn classified information or proprietary information or highly secret intelligence information into money-making propositions. Let's just stop for a minute. Proliferation and the use of information uh, about risk and threat 
what would be of interest to say the Saudis if there was, and I'm totally speculating, I have no knowledge, I have spoken with no one, I have been away from the kinds of secrets that I'm about to suggest could be in the boxes carted away by the FBI, but what would be in the interest of the Saudis to to learn about, say, what we collected about the Iranian nuclear program that we have kept under uh, 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 lock and key because of the sensitivity of our means of collection or our sources. What might be of interest to people with respect to our intelligence on how, say, Gulf state internal politics are playing out based on our close defense relations with the Gulf states and the Saudis who are not always sleeping in the same bed. Uh, Let's look at the things that Trump could do to benefit his presence, to be able to use his trading cards. This is something that is not just simply idle speculation on my part. It's been built into, it's been endemic in uh, his administration and the kinds of uh, personalities that have skirted the line or crossed it in terms of their own commercial interests. If I were going to speculate about what was in those boxes that Trump wanted to be able to use, I would look first, or at least I would look at the same time at his commercial use of this, his ability to exploit it to his own ends, to include against his enemies, by the way, politically here in the States, uh, as he sees them, as much as I would uh, what he might disclose to his uh, his uh, his uh, uh, fist-bumping buddy, Vladimir Putin. And again, I'm speaking with Kent Harrington, a former senior CIA analyst who served as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia and Chief of Station in Asia, and he has an article at Project Syndicate, Trump's Blackmail Defense. So, Kent Harrington, I've been looking into a story that came from a reliable source that the FBI had been conducting a criminal investigation into a Russian woman who was a regular visitor at Mar-a-Lago. This was for the last six months, and they initially thought that she was just a grifter down there to see what she could find. You know, obviously Trump being the king of grifters, um, Mar-a-Lago was grifter central. Uh, But then about two months ago, the FBI's counterintelligence division took over from the criminal division and became a CIA investigation based upon the, the possibility that this woman is what the Soviet KGB would refer to as a red sparrow. And apparently she's been playing golf with Trump and with Lindsey Graham, and uh, that may be why they moved on Mar-a-Lago to seize the documents, because they were concerned about her. Have you heard anything to that effect? I would be... Anything but surprised if, if that turns out to be the case, as you've just described it. Uh, the answer directly is I have no insight into into that story. It's certainly plausible in terms of uh, the history of Mar-a-Lago as a Disneyland for intelligence services. Uh, let's just simply put the uh, story your source or sources have provided against the backdrop of the of the uh, Chinese uh, who was uh, rolled up uh, with all kinds of electric paraphernalia that uh, she was carrying into Mar-a-Lago. Let's simply look at Trump's behavior in public uh, when, for example, uh, during uh, North Korean uh, uh, missile activities, uh, he was having uh, 
dinner in the dining room with uh, uh, Prime Minister Abe and several others and in a parade ground voice was discussing what we knew and didn't know or what the uh, information then coming in about that particular North Korean escapade uh, was all about. Let's just simply look at a place that uh, uh, there had to be arm twisting uh, in Trump's entourage to have uh, his, uh, uh, his uh, sensitive compartment uh, information facility built so that what he had there as president could be properly protected. And then his behavior, which goes without saying, is a risk in and of itself as a as a sort of psychotic ego uh it, that the russians <laughs> would not be exploiting this would be mind-boggling to me uh if they are in the way you've described it and it was a catalyst for investigation well uh, the bureau is and uh, all of its supporting elements in the rest of the national security community in my opinion uh, uh, would be doing their job so just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Kent Harrington, in your article at Project Syndicate, Trump's blackmail defense, you mention how the former head of the CIA, John Deutsch, he was discovered that he routinely stored highly classified intelligence on unsecured personal computer that also allegedly he used to surf internet porn sites. And he, of course, lost his security clearance, lost his job, but Bill Clinton pardoned him, and in 2005, Sandy Berger had to pay a $50,000 fine, lost his security clearance, and lost his law license as well for taking out, you know, stuffing documents from the National Archives in his pants. And then in 2015, David Petraeus, of course, pleaded guilty for security breaches uh, when he allowed his biographer-turned-mistress to see notebooks containing secrets that would have done exceptionally grave damage if they were leaked. So these are the deals that have been made. Do you think there's a deal that the DOJ might end up making with Trump? In other words, you don't run for president again, but we won't put you in jail. I would be surprised if Trump's attorneys, assuming, and we're making a lot of assumptions here, that this investigation turns up the kinds of national security uh, information in uh, Trump's hands improperly and uh, basically illegally that has been suggested to date. I would be uh, I would be surprised if Trump's attorneys weren't uh, the ones who were banging on the door sooner rather than later to talk about deals and arrangements. Whether a deal would reach that kind of negotiation over Trump's future, I think, is not something that I would see put in the way you just described it. The fact is, uh, Trump being convicted, if indeed the investigation led to an indictment, and the indictment led to court, of a felony for the kind of uh, uh, violations of law that would be required, would be the kind of political price, so to speak, he would pay that would I think be a factor if he chose to run again in, in 2024, irrespective of whether under the Constitution or taking any other political precedent you might want to find, there were uh, reasons for him not to run put forward by his allies or supporters. But that the Justice Department would bargain over him not running, uh, it just seems to me to be uh, something that would be not on the table, uh, let's put it in those terms. What the Justice Department faces 
is the dilemma of having to make its case, whether it's in negotiations with the attorneys of the accused or whether it's in court if those negotiations fail, uh, running the risk that the information included uh, that the defense would demand be put on the table in any legal proceedings would be compromised. And that is just the dilemma, almost in a way, the the contradiction <laughs> in how the the laws that protect our, our secrets work in, in a democracy where we have a government of laws and not men and where everyone is equal under the law. Uh, however much it might make someone grind their teeth given uh, Trump's behavior, the defense that he would have would have uh, all the right to demand the public disclosure, whether or not it ever came to that, of the information that uh, they were the government, that is the prosecution was alleging, he compromised. And that is the prosecutor's dilemma. So I, I find myself focused more in my speculation, and I stress this is speculation, I'm not operating on anybody's inside information, on the intricacies, if you will, and and the dilemmas posed by the law, uh, than on any grand political bargains that might come out of a uh, of a negotiation mm. at the highest level over Trump's fate. So, in other words, if, as it's been alleged, that Trump squirreled away top secret national security documents, you're saying that the very disclosure of those documents in in open court would be so damaging to the U.S. that they would basically let Trump off. In other words, Trump would be able to use the value of the secrecy as, as a defense against the fact that he stole them in the first place. Well, that, that that's the kind of, for lack of a better term, blackmail uh, that that is part and parcel of negotiations, whether it's put overtly and explicitly on the table by, uh, by, the, by the parties involved or not. Uh, and that's the dilemma that the prosecutors face. If indeed, if indeed, and again, we're, we're, we're only operating on one set of, uh, reports, uh, the Washington Post reports and whatever else has been supporting of those and other media with respect to the, to the high level of classification and the sensitivity of the documents that uh, are uh, reported to be or alleged to be in the FBI's cache. If those documents don't reach that level, it doesn't mean that this same tactic won't won't be applied on the part by the defense. And uh, if I were there, I'm not a lawyer, but if I were Trump's lawyer, that's the road I would go down uh, because I would demand to have the government uh, prove that the case against my client was at the level of transgression that required the penalty he uh, was was being called uh, uh, to court for. Uh, but but the fact of the matter is that is the dilemma built into any case. It seems to me that uh, requires you to uh, follow the letter of the law and to the procedures they're they're, they're under. Well, Kent Harrington, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Ian. Great to talk to you. And again, I've been speaking with Kent Harrington, who's a former CIA, who was a former senior CIA analyst who served as National Intelligence Officer for East Asia and Chief of Station in Asia, and he has an article at Project Syndicate, Trump's Blackmail Defense. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing whether Trump has the Samson complex and could, when it came to the crunch, tear down the temple around him, given his not-so-veiled threats to instigate civil war should he be indicted. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Bandy Lee, a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist, and a world expert on violence who taught at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring recently to Columbia and Harvard. She became known to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and publishing the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. She's currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition, and her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Bandy Lee. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And you have worked for years and years in pretty stressful conditions in high-security prisons, interviewing murderous prisoners, sociopaths, etc., trying to understand the nature of violence in terms of, of these individuals' pathology. So let's just talk about Trump, I know you've written a book about him, or you and 37 others, 36 others psychiatrists did, but Trump's legal team in their amateurish filing before a federal judge uh, to get a special master, which happened yesterday, Trump's legal team said that three days after the Monday search of Mar-a-Lago, they contacted an FBI agent, presumably one of the people that searched the place, and asked for his help in passing a personal message to the Attorney General Merrick Garland. And the brief message that uh, they recorded was that Mr. Trump had heard, quote, from people around the country about the raid and that they were very, very upset and they were angry. And Trump wanted Garland to know, quote, the heat is building up, the pressure is building up, whatever I can do to take the heat down, to bring the pressure down, just let me know. Well, that's pure mafia boss talk, is it not? I mean, he's basically threatening Garland. If you don't let me off, or if you indict me, all hell is going to break loose, and I'm going to get my MAGA armies on the streets. I mean, how else is there? How else could you interpret that? Yes, absolutely. That's been his dream all along, to have his army rise up in his defense, against the law and against uh, truth, uh, to defend him. And that is the level of affirmation he feels he needs uh, in order to feel normal or okay. I mean, that's his dream come true in a sense. Uh, And the reason why I viewed him as a violent personality from the start But of course, he would never admit that, and he knows exactly what he's doing and the kind of psychological influence he's able to incur on the population, on his followers. And he gauges it and controls it, adjusts it very well. So where does it all begin? Does it begin with the fact that he had this kind of father who was something of a Nazi and was quite brutal in bringing up the, his sons, the oldest son, became an alcoholic, apparently, due to his father's pressure, and that the father would instill in Trump, you've got to be a killer son, you've got to be a killer son, you can't be a loser. 
I mean, where where does the violence come in? Because one of the things that he did early in his term was before the police in Suffolk County, when he gave a speech about MS-13, he urged the police not to be so nice to prisoners when they put them in the back of the patrol car and put their hand on their heads. He said, you know, let them smash their heads against the door and whatever. I mean, he's done that. He's incited his his MAGA people at rallies to beat up on, on hecklers, etc. So what's the line, Bandy, between the kind of brutal father and Trump's penchant for violence? Yes, I think people have noticed that he did not have an ordinary father or his father had some some extremely brutal attitudes about life. And, well, violence comes down to this, that one feels such catastrophic uh, levels of worthlessness and inadequacy and emptiness that one has to lash out against the entire world in order to feel worthy and uh, lovable and full. And that comes from pretty early on in childhood. And there's kind of an arrestation and development uh, we see from both his father and his mother. But this is oftentimes we cannot really tell about uh, someone's personal history. But the reason why Donald Trump was so attractive to his following in a large segment of the population, as it turns out, is because violence is also more a societal phenomenon in that when a segment of the population is deprived, when there's great societal inequality, for example, uh, which means that power is concentrated in the few, and therefore a large segment will be deprived, have poor access to uh, education, jobs, health care, social supports and legal supports and so on. Uh, then you have a population that's very attracted to individuals such as Donald Trump and their their logic reigns, which is that might makes right. It's a very primitive psychology that uh, usually for most individuals ends at around age five, but uh, they're carrying it into adulthood and, and into politics and society. So that was the most concerning aspect for me as a psychiatrist and as a violence specialist. Well, it seems, though, that he's the kind of violent individual that's also a coward, that he would sort of start a fight but have other people finish it for him. And we know from those adults in the room throughout his tenure as president, the generals, etc., particularly now from General Milley, we're learning that he would fly into these absolutely red-hot rages all the time, largely because of his insecurity because he was so out of his depth he knew he was a fraud somewhere in his in that orange corpulence there is some sort of soul i mean he ran as a joke i think he thought he would improve the fortunes of the trump organization and the irony was he got elected even though that was dubious and suddenly was trapped is that a possible explanation yes 
Oh, absolutely. They know better than anybody that they are a fraud or they feel like a fraud. And that is the biggest shame that they feel that they wish to hide from everybody. And in order to overcompensate for that, they go into uh, exaggerated dis displays of force and brutality. And that's, that's how they can convince themselves that they are not really cowards or, uh, or as weak and vulnerable as they are. But in truth, they, they know that and they're doing everything to fight that. So that's how we see the violence come out. And all violent individuals are cowards. So I wanted to ask you about the, the term, the Samson complex, in this, and whether that applies to Trump in the sense that if he's indicted uh, or if he's sort of dragged out of Mar-a-Lago in an orange jumpsuit or a straitjacket, uh, before that happens, when it comes to the crunch, could Trump do what Samson did, and that is tear the temple down around him? And as I say, he's already issued these not-so-veiled threats to instigate a civil war. Should he be indicted? I mean, obviously, Samson was in a rage because he was betrayed by Delilah. I don't, I don't know that Melania was going to betray him, but how far would you take the Samson complex analogy with Trump? Well, the, uh, the thought that one would destroy oneself and others when given the chance when one's own destruction seems imminent is almost a given with someone of Donald Trump's uh, disposition. We see other individuals who have done that, uh, Adolf Hitler being one of them who ordered the destruction of Germany itself when his defeat seemed imminent. And that's actually quite common, that death of the self, the psychic self, is so unbearable that destruction of one's own body, one's life, and certainly of others. Uh, why go down by oneself if you can bring down others? And uh, you would wish to bring down others even before yourself. So, so it would be a mistake to consider that he, just because he seems so destructive to others in order to benefit himself, that he would not be destructive toward himself. In fact, we find that individuals who are violent against others are often uh, also more violent against themselves compared to the general population. So what can be done then, do you think, Dr. Bandin Lee, to stop him running for president again? Because it looks as though he certainly controls the Republican Party. And the idea that anybody in this country would vote for a man who was so manifestly mentally ill would allow him to get his hands on the nuclear codes again, given his frail state. I mean, there were some real concerns, again, from General Milley and others towards the end of Trump's tenure. They, they were really focused on preventing him from getting hold of the nuclear codes, and he was apparently bent on having a war with Iran in the last months of his office, and he was egged on by Netanyahu in Israel. So I just don't understand how the American people could even consider voting for this guy again and giving him the nuclear codes. 
Well, we see that it doesn't come from healthy thinking when such a large elect portion of the electorate would rather err on the side of risk against one's uh, existence of be self-destructive to oneself in order to uh, stay with one's allegiance with the uh, cherished leader or uh, against a party one has been taught and conditioned to demonize, then that's not coming from healthy thinking, uh, obviously. But I think we as a country have not responded to the situation in ways that were called for. We did not intervene in a way that would be normal and expected and reasonable. For, uh, for such a dangerously mentally impaired president, we rather uh, placed a public figure above public health, uh, as the American Psychiatric Association did. But, uh, but at the same time, the consensus among mental health professionals was that we did need to intervene, and we needed to intervene early. Uh, General Milley or even the Speaker of the House had worried about the nuclear codes in the last days of Donald Trump's presidency. But we have been concerned about it since the very first day of his presidency and have issued warnings uh, exactly to that effect. In fact, uh, repeatedly and consistently until the very last days of his presidency. And so that we didn't intervene in ways that the situation called for that mental health professionals didn't have a chance to meet their normal standard uh, role of duty when there is danger to the public uh, for mental health reasons. Um, that was the anomaly. And now we have equating health with disease, equating mental health with mental impairment, then all bets are off in a sense. Pathology will win because it will take any and every means to bring down the organism, be it even the body politic. Well, we see that also with criminality. If we do not indict a president with probably uh, a list of criminal charges that would almost have no end, if we fail to indict, uh, an individual simply because he was holding power, then what kind of a world are we creating? It's free reign for the criminal element, and it will certainly succeed over honest people simply because of its brutality and willingness to do anything and everything to gain advantage. But the problem is that either criminality or mental impairment mental pathology do not build and do not uh, sustain uh, a sophisticated society. Uh, they only know how to destroy. And so uh, the question becomes, do we wish to keep our civilization? Do we wish to keep our democracy? Then if that's the case, we have to contain, we have to hold uh, criminality in check and uh, bring accountability uh, and we need to intervene with 
psychological dangers and mental pathology. We can't allow it simply to, to take over. Dr. Bandy Lee, I thank you so much for joining us here, and I recommend to our audience that they see the article about you in Mother Jones, the psychiatrist who warned us that Donald Trump would unleash violence, was absolutely right. I appreciate uh, you joining us. I appreciate your having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Bandy Lee, who's a medical doctor, forensic psychiatrist, and a world expert on violence, who taught at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School for 17 years before transferring recently to Columbia and Harvard. She became known to the public by leading a group of mental health professional colleagues in breaking the silence about Donald Trump's dangerous psychology and published the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President, and she's currently president of the World Mental Health Coalition. And her latest book is Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by